Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us strength to study these glorious words, inspired by you and uttered by Paul, written down by Tertius, words profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for rebuke, and for instruction. Be with us now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in chapter 1 for a while, and today we're going to continue on where we've looked last week at verses 8 through 12. This week we're going to look at verses 13 through 15. Last week we saw Paul's dependence on God, that prayer is not something added on to ministry. Prayer is not just an add-on. Prayer is the work of the ministry, and we saw Paul depend on God, prayed for the Romans regularly, even calling God as a witness to his praying for them. We observed Paul's desire. Paul had never met the Romans before. These were not his close friends, but Paul kept praying and asking God time and time again if somehow God would now at last let him come to minister to the Romans. There was a great desire to come, and then we looked at discipling. We saw in verse 11 that Paul wanted more than anything to come to, to encourage the Romans, to bring some spiritual gift to them, right? We see that in verse 11, but then we saw the great shocker in verse 12. And what was that? Well, Paul wanted to come to strengthen the Romans, but, but verse 12 was this great shock that he said, oh, actually, not just that. Actually, I want to come to you, Romans, so that you can encourage me. This is Paul, the apostle. I want to encourage you, but you know, I want to be with you because you're going to encourage me, both with each other's faith with each other's gift. We're going to walk together. Paul's view of discipling isn't just that there are these grand Christians that disciple these newer believers, but that we are all disciples of Christ, all helping each other walk this race until we finish it, Lord willing, well. So we saw dependence, we saw desire, we saw discipleship. In in discipleship, we saw that the young and disciple the old, that the old disciple the young, that discipleship is cross-generational, that discipleship is cross-cultural. It happens here in our Sunday gatherings. This is a corporate form of discipleship. It happens in smaller settings like our equipping classes, like the one that we had this morning, or our GTS classes, or our small groups, our community groups, our uh, disciple groups, women's groups, men's groups. Discipleship happens in one-on-one informal conversations or one-on-one meetings where you open up the Word, or in accountability meetings. We see that discipleship happens in all kinds of forms. And Paul understood that there are no super Christians, that there are no uh, super hero Christians who can bypass uh, discipleship, that can, that can opt out of discipleship. Even as an apostle, Paul knew that he needed the Roman Christians to encourage him. Well, we're getting there, church. We're almost done with the introduction. The introduction of Paul's epistle to the Romans ends in verse 17. So next week, you can read ahead. It's just two verses, verses 16 and 17. Uh, But let me give us just a structure of Romans once again. We did this on week one. Let me just give you an overview. So the first 16, first 17 verses are an introduction, and then you'll see there on the slide the, the first major section we've titled, God Has Welcomed Us. And we get that from Romans chapter 15. And we see in this section condemnation, Romans 1.18 to Romans 3 verse 20. Paul has bad news. He says that all have sinned and all 
from Adam and Eve until today, deserve death and judgment. Now that's bad news. He's going to do that all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. But then there's also good news. We'll see justification beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through to chapter 5. Justification, that there's a way to be declared righteous. The way to be declared righteous is to look to Christ because God didn't leave us in our sins. Jesus, fully God, fully man, he came to this earth. I mean, he was in Mary's womb. An embryo, then born, and then raised. And then really only from the years 30 through 33, the last three years of his life was his public ministry. Here is a man who came, God, who became man, and he came in weakness, and he lived for us. And then he marched to the cross and took the death we deserved upon himself. That's great news. And if we look to him in repentance and faith, we are justified. That's to be declared righteous. And then in chapters 6 through 8, we see that we don't just stop there. We don't just stop at justification. We don't just stop at becoming a Christian. But there's something called sanctification. This is the process of becoming holy, becoming more holy. We never become perfect in this life. We never become sinless, but we do sin less. We do grow in our love for God. We do fight sin and we fight temptation and we look more and more like Christ. And then we have an explanation regarding Jews and Gentiles. Chapters 9 through 11, explanation. Now that the gospel has come to the Gentiles, Paul answers the question, what about God's promises to Israel? And then we transition to the second main section. The first, that God welcomes us, but here in the second, we are to welcome others. And we see application, really, from chapters 12 on through 15. Now, the whole book is applicable, as you can see. But that section directly applies to truths that Paul is going to talk about from chapters 1 through 11. That goes through most of 15. Then we see a conclusion at the end of chapter 15 and then all of chapter 16. Overall, you could summarize the book this way. Once again, God has welcomed us into his family. And so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. God has welcomed us into his family. Isn't this marvelous? Isn't this amazing, fellow Christian? God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are then to go welcome others into his family for the glory of God. Let's keep that overarching theme in our minds as we look at today's text. Romans chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, with a sermon I've entitled very creatively, The Reason, Part 2. Well, we began last week. We're going to finish today. The alliteration continues. Last week, three D's, dependence, desire, discipling. Today, we have four D's, four of them, seven in total. The four today are defense, debt, diversity, and delight. Defense, number one. Number two, debt. Number three, diversity. Number four, delight. Well, first, Paul's defense. Look at verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might, may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Here's what Paul's getting at again. We saw a bit of this last week, didn't we? Paul longed to see the Romans. But why hadn't he come? Well, here we get a defense of his absence, and he blame shifts. Now, not in a bad way, 
not in the way we often do. We've all been guilty of blame shifting. One child says after hitting another child, well, he made me do it. She made me do it. That's why I hit them. Now, we as adults, we're not any better. It might not be a physical altercation, but we often blame others for our actions. We blame others in order to justify our actions. Well, Paul here is shifting the blame, but not in the same way that we do. He's saying here, Roman church, Roman Christians, I long to see you. I've often intended to come to you, but I've been prevented thus far. I've been stopped. It's not my choice. He says, I've longed to see you. And then in verse 13, he mounts the beginning of his defense, which he'll flesh out more in chapter 15. We looked at a bit of that in the first week. Sometimes it's right to defend yourself, church. Sometimes it's right to defend yourself. There are certainly times to stay quiet and to trust God, but there are other times to defend yourself and trust God. There were rumors, there was slander that Paul was afraid to go to Rome to face the intellectual elite, to face the, the, the Roman intellectuals. How could Paul go to all the other cities of the Roman Empire but not come to the biggest and most central city in the empire? There was this elephant in the room. The big, this big issue was staring them in the face. It hadn't been addressed. The apostle to the Gentiles hadn't gone to the greatest Gentile city. It's a bit like if a church planting director came to, to, to lead a church planting movement throughout the UAE. And yet all their ministry was in Kelba and in Fujera and in Khan on the eastern Indian Ocean coast. But all the time there in the UAE, never visited the churches of Dubai or Abu Dhabi. That would seem strange to us. Why not visit? Well, Paul takes a stand here. He says, you need to know, Romans, you need to know something about what's happened. I've often intended to come to you. This was not even a one-time thing. I've put your name, Roman church, on my Google calendar over and over and over again, and yet it's been erased. Now, it reminds me of Pastor Scott and Samuel's trip to Nigeria this week. You know, we've had Pastor Femi from City Church in Lagos here often. I think he's preached three or four times over the years at Redeemer. And he's invited us to come to Nigeria time and time again. I think he invited Scott three or four different occasions to come speak at a conference there in Nigeria. And each time, with circumstances outside of Pastor Scott's control, that trip was canceled. That trip was postponed time and time again. It wasn't for lack of desire Pastor Scott loves Pastor Femi and loves the church there in Nigeria and has wanted desperately to go. But time and time again, for whatever reason unknown to us, God prevented that trip. I'm so glad that Pastor Scott and Samuel have arrived in Lagos and they're starting their ministry there today. Well, for Paul, it was the same thing. He had a heartfelt desire to, to go to Rome. He wanted to go to Rome. Many times he intended, often I intended to come. Well, Paul wasn't hiding. He desired a harvest. He desired to see men and women come to Christ. He desired to see Christians built up in their faith, just like the rest of the Gentiles. Well, we don't find out exactly why he's been prevented until chapter 15. Flip there in your Bibles. Uh, we looked at some of these verses. I want to look at the whole section. I want to look at all of Paul's defense. So you can flip there. We'll also have them on the screen. Look at Romans 15. And I want to read all the verses from 
verse 17 down through verse 24. Here's Paul's defense. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all and all the way around to Lycrim, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, now listen to this, verse 20. This is Paul's mission statement in a sense. And thus... Verse 20, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named. So he's going to places like, like Alan prayed for this morning. He's going to the unreached. He's going to the least reached places. He's going to the places where the gospel had not yet been proclaimed, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. And here he just states it so clearly, verse 22. This is the reason. He just spells it out for us. We don't need to guess. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, it's okay, something's changed. Paul's mission is to the unreached. Yes, something's changed. But now, since I no longer, this is an amazing verse. Listen to this. This is how great a church planter Paul was and how God used him in such amazing ways. He says, now I no longer have any room for work in these regions. And so he's been planting churches in major cities and people have been coming to faith in Christ. Since I no longer have room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you. He says he's often planned many years he's wanted to come to Rome. Now verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. So Paul's still on mission. Spain, far west, he's going to Spain because there's people there who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's a man who stays on mission, but he's also a man who says, I'm going to go to Spain, but you know what? I'm going to come to you, and I'm going to be helped on my journey there by you. Again, we see this mutual edification, this mutual help, this mutual discipleship, this mutual support. In a sense, Romans could be a support letter. Paul is letting the Romans know, hey, I'm going to Spain for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to stop. I'm going to see you in Rome because I've longed to see you in Rome. I'm going to stop there, and you're going to help me. You're going to help fund the trip. You're going to give me resources. You're going to encourage me, and you're going to send me to Spain. And then I love the last phrase there, verse 24, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. He's never met the Romans. He never met the Roman Christians, but he's looking forward to seeing them. He's looking forward to enjoying company for a while. Paul's saying here, Roman church, I've wanted to come. God had other plans. Paul's main mission was unreached Gentiles sharing Jesus with those who have never heard. There's a difference between being defensive and giving a defense. Paul does the latter. Apparently, there was gossip, there was slander, but he didn't fight back in kind. Paul does, though, defend his integrity, defends his ministry, he defends his mission. He wasn't scared of Rome. He wasn't disinterested in the Roman church. There were no transportation issues. There was no lack of love for them. It simply wasn't God's will. Sometimes we as Christians must defend ourselves to stand up for what's right, to clear up confusion, to put to death gossip and slander. Church, we must be truth-tellers, clearing up 
confusing and false words. We must also assume the best in others until proven otherwise. This should be our minimum standard at Redeemer, that our first impulse should be to assume the best in others, that we would shut down gossip, that we would shut down slander, and not be part of spreading this deadly disease. Imagine Rome, the Christians, and, and certainly the non-believers as well, were probably gossiping of Paul's avoidance. That's why he mounts this defense in Romans 1 and then in Romans chapter 15. There was a gossip, there was a slander of why Paul hadn't come yet, while all along they didn't know. They didn't know what was going on. They may have assumed one thing and then slandered about him upon that assumption, when all along it was God who was preventing Paul from visiting Rome. Let's be careful with our words, church. But also, let's be careful with our minds and with our hearts. Let's choose to assume the best in one another. We don't always know. Actually, I should say it this way. We never know all that's going on. So friend, do you assume the best in your brothers and sisters in Christ? You could start within your own family. If you're married to a believer, do you assume the best about your spouse? Do you assume the best about those in your community group? Do do you assume the best about your, your friends? Do you assume the best regarding your fellow members here at Redeemer Church? Is that naturally how your heart and mind wanders? Or do you choose to believe every word said? Now here's a good question to ask yourself. Are you safe to slander around? Meaning, do do people tend to come to you with complaints because you'll listen to them? Church, we need to be an unsafe place for gossip and slander. We need to turn the other way. We need to ask questions before condemning We need not give an ear to someone gossiping to us. We need to run the opposite direction, even literally if we need to. We need to refuse to capitulate to a culture of gossip. No matter what our earthly culture say is okay. Instead, we need to refrain and even defend the honor of others. So Paul here is mounting a defense. He's not being defensive, but he is defending himself. He's defending his love for the Romans. He's clearing up matters to the church at Rome. He says, I've often intended to come. He tells the truth. He communicates the truth. He communicates his love for the Roman Christians. And he says, actually, it's God who's prevented me from coming. I want you to know that. And now at last, church in Rome, it appears that a door has opened finally, at last, by the will of God for me to come and see you. That leads to our second point, Paul's debt. We've seen a defense, now we see debt. Debt is a scary word in Dubai. Maybe just hearing that for you this morning brings up anxiety over your past debt or present debt. Many have struggled with payments to the bank each month. Oftentimes it may be a a prayer just that God would provide enough to pay that debt. Paul says that he's in debt as well, though in a different way. Verse 14, Paul writes, I am under obligation. Now listen to this. Listen to who he's under obligation to. The Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I am under ophelates. That's the Greek word that literally means debtor. 
This is a debt. Paul is saying he is in debt. This obligation is a debt to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to the wise, to the foolish. Now, what's the debt? Well, it appears to be what we see in verse 15. Paul's preaching of the gospel. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. Well, who's he in debt to? Well, he says, I'm a debtor to the Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. So who's Paul talking about here? Well, we'll unpack it in the next section. But the point is, everyone, everyone, Paul's talking about everyone. Paul's received grace, and now he owes that same opportunity to others to receive grace. Pastor John Piper puts it like this, When you hear good news about how to escape from a common misery, you become a debtor to tell the good news to others so they can escape the misery too. You owe it to them. Why? Well, because if you withhold the good news of grace from others as if you were qualified for it and they were not, then you show that you've never known grace. Or you could put it like this. If we believe there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and that people actually go there, then we should tell others about this good news. If there really is a heaven and there really is a hell and people actually go there, then we should be truth tellers. We should be gospel truth tellers. We should proclaim the name of Christ to the nations. Now, one of the most convincing arguments I've heard of this actually comes from an atheist named Penn of the well-known illusionist team, Penn and Teller, on his video blog. This is years ago. Uh, Penn tells about a man who came up to him after a show to share the gospel with him. Now, here's Penn's telling of this experience. He, the Christian, said, I'm a businessman. I'm sane. I'm not crazy. And he looked me right in the eye, and he did all of this. It was really meaningful. I believe he knew that I was an atheist. He was not defensive. He was truly complimenting me. It didn't seem like empty flattery. He was really kind and nice. He looked me in the eyes and talked with me. And then he gave me this Bible. And Penn holds up this, this Bible, this gift. And then listen, Penn says, I've always said I don't respect people who don't share their faith. Remember, this is an atheist. I don't respect that at all. If you really believe there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and then listen to these words. I've never forgotten these words. How much do you have to hate somebody to not share the gospel? It's the atheist pen sharing those words. How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And then he ends and says, and this is more important than that. That's an atheist speaking. Church, if we really believe we have the best news in the world, the saving news in the world, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he was risen from the dead, if we realize, if we understand, if we know, if we believe that we have the best news in the world, we can't keep it to ourselves. We have a message, friends, that saves lives eternally. There's a debt to our non-believing friends, but the debt has, has, has more to do than just 
our debt here in Dubai, because our debt's in Dubai, we take out a loan of some kind, perhaps, and then we owe a debt to a bank. It's a bit of a one-on-one transaction most of the time. Paul's debt is different here. Picture this example. A, a, a person gives you money, to, and then you're told to go give that money to somebody else. Okay, so in a sense, in a real sense, in that moment, in that illustration, you are in debt both to the one who's given you the money and you're in debt to the one who is to receive the money. It's a different kind of debt. During that in-between time, you're indebted to both. Paul is writing, I've been given this gospel I've been given this treasure from Jesus. He's handed me this treasure. And now as John Stott writes, Paul is a middleman. Because Paul has received that good news from Jesus. And then he is to pass off that good news as a minister, as a missionary to the Gentiles. He has a treasure and he has a responsibility with this treasure. Ultimately, this debt though is to God. And I read a story of Hudson Taylor, the 19th century missionary to China. Someone suggested to him that he had given his life to China because he so loved the Chinese people. At which Hudson Taylor shook his head and he said, no, no, no. Not because I love the Chinese, but because I love God. Yes, we share the gospel to our dying people because we love them and we have the cure. But more than that, we share the treasure of the gospel because God has given it to us. He loves us more than we can imagine. He loves us more than we can imagine. God in the flesh, Jesus, he came to us. He walked on this earth, right, for you and for me. He died a humiliating death, one the Romans wouldn't even die. He laid on a cross, a Jew on the cross. Atonement took place. A sacrifice took place. We were meant to be there. But he went there instead. Now out of our love for God, we share the good news whenever and wherever we can. Paul defends his ministry. Romans, I love you. I want to come. I want to be with you. He talks about his debt, his obligation to God, his obligation to everyone. And now we're going to see diversity. That's the third point in our text. We've seen defense. We've seen debt. We see diversity. Number three, again, verse 14, I am under obligation. Who? Greeks and barbarians, wise and the foolish. That word barbarian sounds a bit harsh to us today, but in the ancient Near East, it had more to do with speech patterns. Non-Greek languages sounded like babbling to the Greeks, bar, bar, bar. And so anyone not Greek was a barbarian. It was inarticulate speech to them. The point is Greeks and non-Greeks. That includes everyone. It's the same point that he makes when he says wise and the foolish. Paul was to share the gospel with the smartest, with with the most educated Greeks, but he was also to share the gospel with those who had no education, with those who had no training, no smarts. He was speaking in extremes to show not only the extremes, but that Paul's mission was to everyone in between, to all people, to everyone. All were included. This was to be a diverse mission, a diverse church. John MacArthur writes, Paul is saying that I owe the same responsibility to the educated, the uneducated, the wise, the unwise, the culture, the uncultured, the Greeks, and the barbarians. You know what he says there in that statement? You can't pick and choose 
who you want to preach the gospel to. It bothers me when I hear somebody say, well, you know, I'm trying to reach the elite. Oh, why? Are they something better than the rest of us? Now, I love that. We're in debt to God, and then we're in debt to all others. The gospel is not for certain cultures. It's not for certain educational levels. It doesn't matter what your marks are in school or your intelligence. It's not restricted to a specific nationality or ethnicity or race, not to a specific gender or age, not to award winners, not to those in certain vocations. There's nothing let me just say this. I'm going to say this a couple of times. There is nothing that qualifies you for the gospel of grace. There is nothing that qualifies you for the gospel of grace. The only one qualification is that we are unqualified. There's nothing that we bring to the table. This is one reason our church is so wonderful that he has given that grace to people from all around the world. We have Afghans and Ukrainians and Iranians and Filipinos and Indians and Australians and I don't know, we, at least six continents. I don't know if anyone snuck in from Antarctica this morning. I'm glad the, the air conditioning is working today, right? Feels like Antarctica. But God has brought us from all around the world. I don't know, 60 nationalities, maybe 70. I don't even know, but he's brought us all together. It's beautiful. It's also messy. also very messy, isn't it? We have different cultural values, different backgrounds, different ways uh, we were raised as children, different ways we raise our children. We hurt each other's feelings. But while it's messy, it's beautiful. And I love the subtitle of Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp's book. It's called simply Relationships. But I love the subtitle. It's called Relationships. A mess worth making. We are a mess worth making, aren't we? It's worth it, friend. Don't give up. I know there are things that I've said or done or other leaders or members have said or done in our 13 years of existence that may have confused you or hurt you. All of us have hurt one another at one time or another. This makes it challenging for us to be a church. Just think about your own nuclear family, your own parents, your own kids. Think about the church family is really no different. Even as brothers and sisters in Christ, there are times that we're going to hurt one another. This makes it challenging for us to be a church, but it's also one of the ways that our church is precious. I love it when we have visitors who come on a Sunday morning and almost always the first two sentences out of their mouth after I ask them, how did you feel about our worship gathering today? How, 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 how was it? What did you, how did you experience it? Almost every single person has that same answer in the first line or two in an answer. They'll say, yes, yes, Dave. Uh, for me, it was a little taste of heaven when we gathered today. And of course, they're, they're thinking and then they're looking around. They're seeing all of us from all different walks of life, different ages, certainly different nationalities from all around the world. I get that feedback, but I wonder, church, if we take it for granted. I wonder if we forget 
You know, sometimes you'll see that visitor and they'll take out their phone, right? And maybe we don't want them filming us singing, but they're taking out their phone and they're filming because it's outrageous, it's stunning, it's shocking to them. They've never seen anything like this. But I wonder for us, you've been a part of this church for a year or two years or 13 years like me, that we take it for granted that we are all right now on a Sunday morning from 60 or 70 different nationalities gathered together in this room to hear about Jesus. Isn't that stunning? I mean, just look around. This is stunning. We should all be captivated like that first-time visitor with the, with the phone. I'm not, I'm not saying film the singing. But I am saying let's be enthralled by it. Let's be stunned by it. Because even in Dubai, make no mistake, even in Dubai, Sharjah, most churches are mono-ethnic. Okay? Most churches around the world are mono-ethnic. What we have here is a gift. Nothing we created. God created it. God brought us here together. And Paul is saying he's under obligation or debt to all people so as we gather, as a messy church, as a beautiful mess, you could say, here's what this means. This means that none of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, none of us are better than anyone else. Ethnic slurs, racist remarks should never come out of our mouths. We know out of an overflow of our heart, our mouth speaks. But even more than that, any ethnocentrism, it's a belief that our culture is better than another, all that should be rooted out of our hearts. When we do this and we live as brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world, it's startling to see this love extended cross-culturally, cross-socioeconomically, this adorns the gospel. It's not the gospel, but it shines the light on the gospel. It adorns the gospel. In the early days of our church, our family we lived in a, in a villa with, with lots of different interns. We had the church offices there, and we had monthly potlucks there. People would bring food, and we'd gather together. Well, one night, uh, we hosted a potluck. It was a great time. The very next day, we were surrounded in that villa by, by unreached peoples. And that very next day, uh, one of our neighbors uh, came and talked to Gloria. They were talking, and the neighbor just confessed and said, just wanted to tell you that all night last night, I had my face glued to uh, my window, and I was looking into your yard. And I can't believe what I saw. You can believe Gloria at this point is wondering, what did you see? What happened at our potluck last night? Well, she goes on to say this. She says, I saw Indians, and I saw Africans. I saw East Asians. I saw Westerners. They were all bringing food, and they were all coming into your house to eat together. Now, why would you do that? How can this be? Gloria, smiling and seeing the, the direct road into the gospel, she smiled and said, it's because of Jesus. It's because Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus has torn down and broken down every racial barrier. He brings us together. Why? Because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we come together. It's because of the cross that we are brothers and sisters. That's why we love each other. That's why we eat together. That's why we share in fellowship with one another. It's because of Jesus. And our neighbor was stunned. Redeemer Church, let's not look down on anyone. The way we love one another is a visual display. It's a vis visual picture of the good news of, of the gospel that we believe. It's a visual picture of the gospel to a dying world. The gospel is for everyone, and so we share it with anyone, regardless of their culture, intelligence, wisdom, knowledge, education, family background, past actions. I, I say often, no matter what you did last year or even last night, this invitation to believe in Jesus to be saved goes out to you today and any day. 
there are no qualifications for grace. If so, then it would cease to be grace. There are no qualifications for grace because if so, it would stop being grace because grace is a free gift. What Jesus has done for us is a free gift. Therefore, none of us are better than any other of us. We've all been given a free gift. And even accepting that free gift, that's grace. That means we didn't do it because we were smarter than the next person. It just means that God opened our eyes, God opened our hearts to be saved. Well, how are, some way, how are some ways we can apply this immediately? Well, invite someone from a different nationality to your home for a meal. Invite someone of a different nationality to be with you here on Sundays. Meet one person, one new person each Sunday here in this gathering from a different background. Younger men and women. Invite an older man or woman out for coffee. An older man or an older woman. Invite a younger man or a younger woman for coffee. Consider volunteering for our Redeemer Kids Ministry and serve families of children from different backgrounds. Share the gospel with your Uber or taxi driver. Share with the person next to you on the metro. Talk to one of your coworkers about Jesus. Spend time with someone from a different socioeconomic background. Spend time with someone from a different vocation. Children, talk to kids in the playground or in school who you don't normally talk to. Talk to kids from other schools even. Church, our goal is not to be colorblind. Let me just say that again. Our goal as a church is not to be colorblind. That's not the point. God has made us all in his image. And so we celebrate those differences and yet we strive for unity. And we honor God by loving others from different nationalities. Paul was indebted to all. The same is true to us. Celebrate our differences. Live according to the Bible. The Bible always trumps our culture. And then let's seek according to the Bible, according to God's word, to strive for unity. So we've seen Paul's defense. We've seen debt. We've seen diversity. The fourth D, or even the seventh D across these two weeks, number four, is Paul's delight. Verse 15. So I am eager. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now this is powerful. Look at what Paul is saying. Who's he writing to? The Roman church, the Roman Christians. I'm eager. It would be my delight to do what? To preach the gospel to you Roman Christians. I want to encourage you with the good news of Jesus. Certainly Paul would also have in mind sharing the gospel with non-believers. This is what Paul did everywhere he went. He would preach the gospel to non-believers. He was an evangelistic preacher, leading people to faith, starting churches. He's always eager to do that. But specifically here, he wants to preach the gospel to the church. This verse has always stunned me. Even Christians need the gospel. I'll just say it again. Even Christians need the gospel. This is one reason we preach it every week through our songs, through our prayers, through our sermons. It's not so all believers can take a nap and zone out for a few moments. Yes, the scriptures all point to Christ, but we as Christians also need to hear the gospel simply for our own edification and our own growth. The gospel is certainly the message which leads to salvation. We've sinned, 
We deserve death. Jesus came. He died on the cross to take our sins away. He rose from the dead. And if we would place our faith in him, repenting of our sins and believing in him to save us, we are saved. That is good news. That is a message that leads to salvation. And if you, if you are here and you've not yet trusted in Christ for salvation, I urge you, please do it today. Do it today. And if you're still thinking about it today, come next week. We're going to see that the gospel is the power of God in verse 16. So if you're not yet a believer today, if you answer the question, am I, real, am, I, uh, am I a Christian? And you don't know how to answer that question. Friend, I urge you, turn to Christ. And I urge you, come back next week. We're going to see the power that this gospel has. No, it's a message that leads to salvation, but as Christians, we never get over this truth. We never move past this truth. It blesses us, and we must remind ourselves and each other of it again and again. Right before we moved here, 15 years ago, uh, Gloria and myself and our baby daughter Eliza, we were uh, in our friend Kevin and Katie's house. And on their coffee table, after we sat down, was a little book, and we picked it up. And as soon as we picked up the book, Kevin said, oh, take that copy with you. That book will change your life. We said, okay, we'll, we'll take it with us. And since then, we've given out over 100 copies of this book. It's written by a pastor you've never heard of. It's only 90 pages with big font. And it doesn't have a hip title. It's called A Gospel Primer for Christians. And Kevin was right, it did change our lives. I want to read several quotes from the book. Listen carefully to what Milton Vincent is saying. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians about how the gospel changes us. He's writing to us. Paul wrote to the Roman church. Milton Vincent in this book is writing to Christians about how the gospel transforms us. So just listen. I have several quotes here. Listen to these. The gospel encourages me to rest in my righteous standing with God, a standing which Christ himself has accomplished and always maintains for me. I never have to do a moment's labor to gain or maintain my justified status before God. Freed from the burden of such a task, I now can put my energies into enjoying God, pursuing holiness, and ministering God's amazing grace to others. Here's the second one. The gospel also reminds me that my righteous standing with God always holds firm. I love this. Always holds firm regardless of my performance. You can't lose your salvation. It's a gift. God's given it to us. I love this reminder. And he says, because my standing is based solely on the work of Jesus and not mine, on my worst days of sin and failure, the gospel encourages me with God's unrelenting grace towards me. On my best days of victory and usefulness, the gospel keeps me relating to God solely, again, even in our victories, those are God's, solely on the basis of Jesus' righteousness and not mine. Another quote, the more I experience the gospel, the more there develops within me a yearning affection for my fellow Christians who are also participating in the glories of the gospel. Now, isn't that rich? This affection for them comes loaded with confidence in their continued spiritual growth and ultimate glorification. And it becomes my pleasure to express to them this loving confidence regarding the ongoing work of God in their lives. This is us identifying evidences of grace in each other. This is us reminding each other of the good news of the gospel. That God is doing a work in one another. And we need to be telling each other these truths. Here's another one. So how can I come to love God with all my being? Well, the Bible teaches that genuine love in my heart for God is generated by an awareness of his love for me. 
And nowhere is the love of God more clearly revealed than in the gospel. Oh, Christians, the gospel should melt our hearts. The gospel should affect us. There's no greater message. There are other messages we, we teach in throughout the scriptures, but ultimately the scriptures all point to Jesus, and ultimately at the very heart of the Bible and the gospel is Christ's death and resurrection. And then I like this last one. When my mind is fixed on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, Christ's death and resurrection, I have ample stimulation to show God's love to other people. For I am always willing to show love to others when I am freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. Doing good and showing love to others who have wronged me is always the opposite of what my sinful flesh wants me to do. I mean, did you catch this last quote? It's so clear. When our minds are fixed on the love of Jesus, on God's love for us, his death on the cross on our behalf, his triumph over death, when our heart has, and I love the word freshly there, for I'm always willing to show love to others when I'm freshly mindful of the love that God has shown me. It is then that we have ample energy to show love to others. It's a great commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's a reason one comes before two. We can't do two if we don't have one. We need to marvel at God's grace to us. When we look at God's love for us, how can we not love others? Our church, if we're all walking with God, if we're all studying the Bible, if we're all meditating and memorizing Scripture, if we're all praying, even here on Sundays, just praying beforehand, praying for all your interactions with others here on Sunday morning, if you're a prayerful person, if you're a person dependent on God, like Paul, if you're one who's dependent on the Scriptures and you study not merely for an academic exercise, but for heart transformation, if you are doing those things, if we were all doing those things as a community, our community would be transformed. When we look at God's love for us, how can we not love others? That's really the point of Romans, isn't it? Remember the point. God has welcomed us into his family, and so we are to welcome others into his family for the glory of God. The truth that we've been received into God's family fuels our outreach to others. This gospel is for non-believers and this gospel is for believers. None of us get to take a nap during the sermon. Sorry to disappoint some of you. All parts of all sermons are important for all people. We need all of this. If you're a Christian and you find yourself bored of the gospel, perhaps the problem isn't the message or the messenger. Perhaps the problem is your own heart. So fellow Christian, are you bored of the gospel? It's Paul's mission to share the gospel with non-Christians and with Christians. We need this message. Paul is eager for non-believers to be saved, but he's also eager to see Christians grow in holiness and their love of God and one another. Well, in conclusion, in these verses we've seen Paul's defense. Hey, I've wanted to come. I've intended to come many times. I've been prohibited thus far by God but I think I'm coming now. We've seen his defense. We've seen his debt. There's a debt to God. There's a debt to others. We have also seen his desire. We've seen his desire for the nations. It's a diverse mission. All peoples can come to Christ. It's a message for non-believers and believers. Church, let's be a gospel people. Redeemer Church, let's be a gospel people, a congregation who encourages one another with the gospel inside the church 
and outside the church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for Christ's death and resurrection. Father, we thank you for the message of the gospel. Would we be a church that would encourage one another with this good news? Would we remind each other of it often? Father, would the gospel stir our hearts to boldness and to service? We pray that we would speak boldly outside the church to those who have not yet been saved. We pray as a discipling culture within the church that gospel words would be on our lips just the same. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.